and we have two passages this morning for our reading. It's Deuteronomy 17, 14, 20 is the first one. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear his Lord, or the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Second passage is Deuteronomy 18, 15, 22. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here, and we are uh, receiving the tremendous privilege of being able to hear the word of the Lord. We are convinced that uh, on the pages of Scripture, every word is inspired by God, and that God builds His church from that word, uh, and so we turn each and every week to it. This week, in the kind providence of God, we are in Deuteronomy 16, part of 16 through all the way through 18, and Israel is preparing to enter into the promised land. This is a new generation than the one that came up out of Egypt, a generation that, that uh, is now the, the generation that's going to take them forward as a people into the promised land. And there are some things that are necessary for them to know and to do as they move from a people that was centralized and moving together as one and, and closely camped together to a people that's going to be spread out along the, the, the whole land that God has, 
is going to give to them. And so th- there are some necessary changes, and, and Moses has been pointing these things out. Here are the things that are going to need to happen. And yet, at the same time, they're still going to need to maintain their unique identity as God's people, distinct from all the other nations around them. In fact, we've seen as we've gone through Deuteronomy that, that God is really serious about making sure that they make those distinctions very, very clear, that they don't worship in the same way that the Canaanites worship, that they don't take on board some of the things that they had taken on board, that they even eat differently, they celebrate differently, they do things differently. And in his mercy, God speaks into them as they move into this promised land, kindly instructing them on how to move forward in specific ways. The goal is the same, that all of Israel would be pulling in one direction, that all of Israel would be this nation that is doing the law of God, keeping his word, fearing the Lord their God, and here to help them, God appoints leaders in Israel. So God is regulating the the life that they're going to have, the the community life of Israel for the promised land. And and he's going to regulate this life under some appointed leaders that are for the good of Israel. You, You probably recall that just after the exodus, Moses meets his father-in-law Jethro, and, and at that time Jethro is saying, hey, some of the things that you're doing aren't good. And Moses was taking on a lot of the, the judging and the cases that were going on in Israel, and he says, let's appoint judges and elders to help with this. And so that was what they did. Moses decided that that's a good idea and it's helpful, so they appointed judges to help them along the way. But th- what's the status for that moving forward? And here God directs it. In chapter 16, starting in verse 18, He says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. There's order that God is directing for each and every town of the promised land, which again is going to be spread out. They're not going to be one camp anymore. They're going to be spread out in many different towns in the promised land, and God is going to bring order to this, and this order is an order for righteous judgment, and and that's clearly God's concern. He cares about really good things in each and every town. God wants righteous judgment, and he wants these judges to help bring this about, these officers to help provide righteous judgment in every town that they're going to dwell in. And and while for these these judges and officers, there's no detailed job description, there there is a a brief description of righteous judgment. In verse 19, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So for righteous judgment to happen in every town, here's what God says. Here's what you're going to need. The key to this righteous judgment are these three shall nots. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. Now, Likely you've seen the statue of uh, Lady Justice where she's holding the scales and the sword and, and she's blindfolded. So as to not, what, show partiality. Show, so as to judge rightly, correctly, righteously. And these judges are to be similar. God, God knows the temptation of each human heart. He knows the temptation to do what uh, Jacob did with his sons, right? He favored one over the other and it ripped them apart, right? It, it caused all sorts of issues within the family that would then become the 12 tribes 
of Israel. God knew that there was a temptation for that. James in the New Testament writes of this saying, he knows of this temptation. So he says, don't show partiality or preference to the rich. He says, don't let the rich man come in and you say, hey, come up here, sit in this nice seat, and, and the poor man be neglected. Don't show partiality and preference because God knows that those need to be in there because of our hearts. And he knows bribes can be powerful corruptors. You think of Judas, like, hey, we'll give you money to betray one that you've been following for a few years. Or Jesus' tomb, these soldiers, like, hey, we're going to give you money. Just tell them that the, the disciples can, you know, like, come up with a story. Like, God knows the temptation of the human heart to, to be moved away, to be bribed, and to show favoritism and partiality. And so he says these judges, they, they are not to do those things. It shouldn't pervert justice. Don't show partiality. Don't accept bribes. The three shall nots. But they contrast very heavily in order to bring emphasis with verse 20. This great verse, justice and only justice. After you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, justice. And only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's no doubt about what these judges are to be about we don't get a full and detailed job description of everything they're to do, but here's what they're to be about. They're to be about justice and only justice. And, and notice that the motive for this justice is the same motive that God has been giving to the Israelites throughout the book of Deuteronomy. What's the motive? Life. That you may live, that it may go well with you. That's what God wants for them, and that's the motive for justice. Like, justice is going to be part of the means God is going to keep you in this good standing, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Part of preserving life in the promised land was a matter of not perverting justice, was keeping justice only justice. So basic to their life as a community, to their life as a nation, was this issue of justice. And this motivation to follow justice is a response to what God had already given. Say, verse 20, justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord is giving to you. He's, he's giving you. It's, it's a land that's for them. Like they're going to inherit this land. It's given to them. And it reminds us of this key principle. One commentator says it this way, that we must never forget that in both Testaments, what the people of God are called upon to do, justice only, follow justice, that's what they're called to do, is always based upon what has already been done. The gift of God is always prior to and the basis of the task we are given to live godly lives. We think about how this goes throughout both Testaments, as he said. Love God. Why? John tells us because he first loved us. Or we think of Romans 12, like, because of the mercies of God, in light of his mercies that he's poured out upon you, offer your lives as this living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to you. What he has done, what he has given, then drives what we are to do in response. His actions that we are to take on, the responsibilities that God has given to us, are in response to the things that he has already given. And the same is true for the Israelites. The promised land, it's, it's theirs. That's why it's called the promised land. God promised to give it to him. He's going to be faithful to those promises. It's given. It's their inheritance because God loves them and he chose them out of all the nations. This is the land I'm giving to you. You're my people. And because of that, they are to follow justice, only justice. Now, justice isn't their idea. Justice is God's idea. 
He, he is the one who wants them to follow justice. This is him. He is the one who is instructing them to follow this and only this because it's his idea. They know how to follow it because they know God. Justice flows from God, from his very character and nature. He can say to follow justice, only justice, and they can know what that means because they can know God. When Abraham intercedes, this is right before Sodom and Gomorrah, and God raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah, he, he reveals to Abraham part of his plan, and I love what Abraham says to him. He says, shall the judge of all the earth not do what is right, what is just? And it's a rhetorical question, like Abraham knows, because he knows God, he knows that God is going to do what's right, and so he's going to plead on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he knows, he comes to this question, you're the judge of all things, and what's he trust about this judge? He's always going to do what is just, what is right. God had revealed himself to the Israelites. Remember Exodus 34, this great, God is almost defining himself, the, the Lord, the Lord, the, here's who the Lord is, he's this God who is merciful and gracious abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, but who will not do what? He will by no means clear the guilty. This is a God who is just. Or we look back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 17. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who, here's this kind of God, He's the one who is not partial. He is the one who takes no bribe. And he wants them to then reflect his character and nature. It's, again, rooted in who he is. He is just, and he gives this just law for them that not only reveals his character, but reveals what, how they can be just and righteous in their living. And so, yeah, they, they know what, how to follow justice, and only justice because of God. You think of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that are kind of the constitution of Israel. They are what reflect God's justice and righteousness. And the sum of that is love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love neighbor as yourself. Right? So there's these horizontal commands, these neighbor love commands that are about justice in the society, justice in community. And so Israel knows how to follow justice, only justice. But God appoints these judges to make sure that that's carried through. In every town in the promised land, he wants people who will help them follow justice, only justice, because that's what he's like. And he wants that reflected in his people and in every town that they're in. So in, in that sense that, that God wants them to reflect who he is, justice then becomes something that's no less important for God's people today. It's not just an Israel idea that you should follow justice, only justice, because it's rooted in God and a reflection of his good character and nature. And we are to be like God. We're still to reflect him as his image bearers. We're to imitate him on this earth, and he is a just God, so we are to be just people. Justice, it, it may be co-opted by our culture, and they may fill that word with all kinds of crazy things, and we can let them do it. But we know what justice is. We know the foundation of justice. It's God's idea. And actually, we, we know very clearly that without him, that it, it's meaningless. Justice is meaningless without God and who he is and what he has said to do on this earth. And so you can say what you want about justice. We, we know this God, and so we know how we can carry this out on this earth because, because of God, who he is. And when he said God, his people are, are to care about justice because they love God. 
And when we love God, we, we care about the things God cares about. We want to reflect who he is and what he's like in this world. We care about justice in community and in society because we're loving neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the justice that God calls for. Justice, only justice, is to be followed. And it's to be filling the land because the land could be filled with all sorts of other things. And indeed, the land they're going into is filled with other things that aren't justice, only justice. We get a taste of some of these things as God warns them in chapter 16, verse 21. You shall not plant any trees as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which a blemish, any defect, what, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. And if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who, who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or that woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now perhaps this is lands here, right after he talks about judges, because these are some of the cases that some of these judges are going to have to think through and, and help uh, distinguish between. They might have to bring their righteous judgment and justice into these types of situations that God says here. And, and what's going on here is that there are all sorts of covenant breaks. They're breaking covenant with the Lord in all these different ways. And if there's justice, only justice, then they're going to address those things, those covenant breaks. There, there's this temptation, it seems like, that, that they're going to have. Of course, they've been warned of this over and over again, of, of following the way of the people in the land. And so maybe that's why you're not to plant a tree in a certain place. Because he knows, like, well, maybe it just starts out that way and it seems innocent enough, but pretty soon you, you're sacrificing on those altars. You're, you're following the, the worship, uh, the way that they were worshiping. You're not to do that. Perhaps they were willing to compromise of God's command and say, well, this one has a, just a, a slight blemish so we can offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and God knew that if they're willing to, to compromise on any of God's commands, that, that they're willing to compromise anywhere and everywhere and will do so in their lives. And so if they're to follow justice, then they're to take action here in these cases and help purge and protect Israel from more injustice. But there's another insertion of syncretism and idolatry. I'm going to zoom us ahead to chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Uh, something similar addressed with abominable practices is the heading that I have. And he says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. And, and some of the things that follow are going to, again, help us at least frame the, the, the talk and the conversation that we've already had a few times about why God is pouring out his anger and wrath and justice upon these nations. There shall not be found among anyone, among you, anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Again, these are the things that were happening in the land. These are some of the nations that, that they're going into dispossess in the land. This is what they were doing. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or in 
interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord God has not allowed you to do this. God is using Israel as a nation to be an instrument of justice. And he lists, here's some of the abominable practices of the land you're going into. And I'm using you as an instrument of justice against these things. And Israel then was in that way to purify the land, to, to purge the land of evil, and then inhabit the land as what kind of a people? A pure people, a, a holy people, people that were holy unto the Lord, holy devoted to Him, and holy allegiant to Him. They were to follow in the footsteps of these unjust people and fill this land with purity. And judges were to help with that in every town. But these judges were to receive help from other leaders. And there's one, a few cases that are listed here in chapter 17 that are cases that are then referred from these judges to some priests. Priests were also to have an important role in the life and order and government of Israel. So look in chapter 17, starting in verse 8. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, and one kind of legal right and another, or another one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall rise and you shall go up to the place that the Lord will choose, the, the place within the place that he's going to give to them to worship, that place, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you their decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So again, you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. God directs them and orders them that, that there's this way. If you have some more complex cases that, that require a little bit more, like you can take them to the priests. And these priests who are set aside by God, devoted to God and His service, they're, they're to decide on these cases, and, and their decision on these cases is to be obeyed, or again, he says, if it's not, then, then the death penalty ensues. The, the penalty functions, again, as it does elsewhere in Deuteronomy, to both purify Israel from these contaminations, the sin that will so easily spread to all of them, but it will also protect them. It, it's warning them. He says that others may not act in the same way, that they may not act presumptuously either. But you wonder why at this point right here, it's like, if they don't obey, it seems like we have some really serious consequences. Like, man, he just ratcheted things up quite a bit when he says, if they don't obey, the death penalty comes. Notice why. Notice the authority here. It's not just the priests themselves. What does he tell them to do? Go to the place that the Lord is going to choose. So it's God's place. You're directed to God's place. To Levitical priests, they, that is God's tribe that he set aside to be his servants, wholly devoted to him. These are people that are spoken of in, in Numbers chapter 3, that I think helps describe them. He says, I have taken the Levites 
From among all the people of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel, the Levites, they shall be mine. So the, the Levites, these people that the Lord is directing them to, are, are those who the Lord has set aside. So God has initiated that. God has declared something about the Levites. They're not claiming this for themselves. They serve God in a way that others, other tribes, didn't and couldn't. And so they have this different sense of authority that's authority from God. This is why they are repeatedly singled out to be cared for in Deuteronomy. We've seen like, hey, if you have a feast, make sure you take care of the, the Levites. If you're going to these festivals, if you're offering your tithe, make sure you don't neglect them. They're singled out to be cared for, and here they're singled out to be obeyed because they have some authority that's given from God. In other words, you're, you're doing all of those things, tithing, sharing, obeying, because of God's authority primarily. We see in chapter 18, verse 1, the Levitical priests of all the tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The, the Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and, and the stomach the first fruits of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the first fleece of your sheep, and you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Again, what's tied to this? It's not just the people themselves. Why should they obey or go to the death penalty? Because God has said this. Why should they give of these things, the first fruits of their offerings? Because God has put this in place. And so I think one commentator helps us rightly that the relation of Levi to Israel in Deuteronomy is such as to be an ideal representation of how the whole people should stand, both to Yahweh, that is the Lord, and the land. So they are, to all of Israel, a picture of what it should be like. Their inheritance, what is it? It's the Lord. What's their service? It's the Lord. So Levi out of all the tribes, they uniquely are a tribe that is dedicated wholly to the Lord. They are a picture themselves of what relationship with the Lord should be like. And so there, the rest of the tribes, their relationship to the Levites matters immensely because God wants that picture to then expand. He wants all of them to, to fill in that picture. Like we might have inherited the land, but our inheritance is God. We trust in him. We might be serving in some other capacities, but ultimately our service is to God. And so they stand as this picture of ideal Israel. And so to disobey their judgment, to not provide for them, to neglect them, is an offense not just to the Levites, it's an offense to God. That if the Levite is neglected, if the Levite is disobeyed, it's a display of the negligence and of the rebellion and of the disobedience, not just to them, but to God. And so the Levitical priests, they come and they add some authority to the judgments that are being made within the land so that justice, only justice, can be upheld and followed. They're in on these judgments, and they're helping in the same way to purge Israel and pull them away from sin and to turn them again toward God. That's their function. That's their role. Now, perhaps because Moses is then instructing them on, on these leaders that hold some authority, Moses decides to drop in some information about kings. It, it does seem to be a little bit out of the blue that he drops this passage in there in chapter 17, verse 14. But maybe it's, again, because of the authority figures that he's addressing and the leadership in Israel that he's addressing that he wants to go ahead and instruct them on the kings, starting in chapter 17, verse 14. And he says this 
word at the beginning that should catch our attention again. When. When. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Again, he puts in front of them the certainty of what God is going to do. That he is going to give the land. So the gift, again, is prior to the task. And he, he's going to instruct them on kings, but he's reminding them of the gift first. And it would serve to remind them not only of the faithfulness of God, but as they stand on the edge of the promised land, perhaps trembling a little bit because they know that the land has fortified cities and big people and mighty warriors. Again, with this word, when, he, he gives them some reminders of, of confidence in God, that this is a win because God is going to give this to you. And so when he does this, here's what you're to do when you possess it and dwell in it. And then you say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So again, seemingly out of the blue, and apparently, he, although he's giving instructions for the king, it's not absolutely necessary that there be a king. He, he Right now, they're, they're functioning without a king. He even tells them in the land, he doesn't say, set up a king right now. Doesn't do that. He just says, when this arises, when this comes up, here are some things that you can do. God doesn't say, set the king. He actually puts this on the mouth of Israel and says, when you, when you guys say this. And I, I think that what is happening, he is anticipating what's going to happen in 1 Samuel. This is when Israel does exactly what God predicted they would do, said they would do. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, all the elders of Israel, they gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, and serving other gods, and so they are also doing to you. Their request for a king in First Samuel was an overflow of not just their desire for a king, but of their forsaking of God as king. It was a rejection of, of God as being king over them, and his reign and his rule in their lives. But apparently, according to Deuteronomy, setting a king over them itself, just the having a king, and then even the, just the desire alone for a king wasn't inherently sinful. And so God makes an allowance for it before it even happens in the book of Deuteronomy. So it seems that you could see some of the beauty and kindness of God that he, he even makes space for it to be their sinful initiative and still be brought under his good authority. And so in other words, their sinful initiative can still be brought into submission to the kindness of God's authority. And God makes allowances. He has a path of repentance already laid out before. And here's what he says. You may, not, you may indeed set a king over you, verse 15, one that he will choose from among your brothers. You shall set him as king over you. Don't put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Maybe that reason there is the same reason that he doesn't allow them to intermarry with other nations, not because it's some sort of racial issue, but because of a, a theological issue that perhaps their hearts were more easily drawn away to the gods of other nations, so they wanted a king from among them. But that's 
part of it, but the emphasis in this passage seems to be more on one that's an equal. So a, a brother, and in verse 20, he's going to say that this, this one shall not be lifted up above his brothers. And so it seems that, that the emphasis there is more on about this king being one who is an equal with you. And then the, the Lord gives three things that he shall not do. So he gives the king's parameters, and he sets this king apart from all other kings by saying these things. Starting in verse 16, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. All these things that he says you shall not do, those are the boasts of kings. That is what kings do. That is what they boast about. That is the world of kings. That's what they go after. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, he he looks around at his palace, at his wealth, at his might, that he has won by his strength and his military prowess. Like He looks around and says, look at all the things that I have done. Like Look at my great kingdom. Look at Babylon. What a great place that I have done. That's what kings do. They boast, and they boast of their power. They boast of their might. They boast of their influence. They, they, they boast of, of their many wives and their wealth. And God says to Israel's king, none of that, not any of that, shall be acquired by Israel's king. No surprise that the king of Israel is to be different. This is what God has been saying to the people of Israel all along. Don't go that way. Don't eat those things. Be different, be distinct, because you're mine, you're a holy nation. So the king, likewise, is to follow in that. The king is to be different. This is the Lord's appointed king. Notice it's the one that the Lord appoints, and so he's to be different than all other kings. These aren't just, these shall not acquire these thing, horses and wealth and power. It's, It's not about just making that king different, but about keeping Israel, that king and Israel, from danger. You think about Solomon. We read of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon was one who gave himself to these types of things. Listen to verse 26 of Solomon chapter 10, or 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities. With the king in Jerusalem, and the king made silver as common as Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore, and Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. I mean, he's, he's going down the list, and the king's traders, they received from Q at a price, a chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, and a horse for 150, and so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria." Now, King Solomon, he loved, chapter 11, many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon, he clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after 
Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And it wasn't just Solomon. Uh, The list almost mirrors the list of things that God warns them about not to do here in Deuteronomy. And here's the things that kings are not to do. And Solomon uh, just goes against every single one on that list. But that wasn't just about Solomon. This plunged Israel into idolatry. It plunged Israel into battles with other nations. It plunged Israel into shattered families, broken tribes, and a broken kingdom that brought them hurt upon hurt, difficulty upon difficulty. So the shall nots here were for the king's good and they're for the good of Israel. It's good to be reminded that God's commands, even his negative commands, don't do these things, which we want to push away from, are actually good. Don't tell me what we're against. Tell me what we're for. Stop saying don't do things. Tell me do some things. Well, God gives us a whole bunch of don'ts. And every single one of them is for our good. The the don'ts here, the negative commands here are for the king's good. They're for the people of Israel's good. I, I guess you could turn them around and make them positive and say do these, but... There's a lot of don'ts that we need to listen to. And and I think we need to ask, do do we view God's negative commands that way? As good for us, good parameters. What's God trying to keep the king from doing? From having his heart turned away. From having Israel being turned away. God is not against all power. He has all power. God is not against wealth. He's giving them an abundant land that's going to produce great things for them. He's not against marriage. He, he's the one who created marriage. He's not against someone having a wife. So he has to give all these don'ts because he's for some things, sure, but he's also protecting them because he knows you could go that direction. And because he's for their hearts not being turned away, he has to tell them don't. Because he's for our hearts not being turned away, there are a lot of don'ts that God has to give to us. He says, don't be drunk on wine. Is it because God hates fun? Does he not like things that taste good? Is that why he's telling us don't? No. He says, don't be drunk on wine. Be filled instead with the Spirit. He he wants that for us. Don't be anxious about anything. Is that because there's nothing to be anxious about in the world? No, because he wants us to pray about everything, that our anxious hearts might be recipients of the peace that passes understanding that only comes from above. Don't love the world. Why? Because there's nothing good in the world? No, because the world and the things of the world are passing away, but the one who does the will of the Lord abides forever. God is certainly against some things, but he's doing that because he's for some things. So we need to embrace the negative commands from God. When we hear a don't, let's not push it away and give it the, the stiff arm and keep it at arm's length. Let's, let's embrace it. We need to hear those don'ts. We need those parameters of things not to do. They're good commands from God who is protecting us purifying us and they're God's means to keep our hearts from turning away and so when he says don't we're like what's not God is not trying to keep the king down in the world he is trying to keep the king down before him right humble before him submitted to him this is why he adds here's the things the king is to be about chapter 17 verse 18 when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself and In a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. Notice the conjunction of all these leaders working together. The Levitical priests are there, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, just as Israel was to do, right? No different command there. That his heart may not, what, be lifted up above his brothers, 
and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue as continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The motivation, again, is life. We want you to continue. We want the kingdom to be a glory unto God, good for the people. That's why he's to do these things. But notice that this man that is going to be have some kingly authority to go into battle and to, to take the hill. Like he's also a man who's under authority. He, he has the word that he's to submit to, God that he's to submit to. He's this one that's, that's a lifelong learner. You take this book, you write it down, and you keep reading it. You keep learning from it. He's this man who obeys the, the word, who fears God, whose heart isn't lifted up among his brothers as if he's their superior, but he's doing the same things that they're called to do. In other words, I think we could say that this king is a model Israelite. And, and no matter how much business he's to give himself to and the busyness of kingly life, we know for sure that he's to maintain the right posture before God. You may have battles to fight and decisions to make, uh, matters of state or whatever, but here's what you for sure need to be doing is you need to get a copy of that law and you need to be reading it and sitting under it and obeying it no matter what else that you are doing. It's no wonder that his heart isn't to be lifted up because his essential responsibility is the same as theirs. Obey this word. Submit yourself under it. Now, the description here in 18 through 20 is, is almost like this, this Psalm 1 man, the one who meditates on the word day and night. And so here we have the picture of the, the ideal king. And Moses then concludes the, the section this morning with the, the ideal prophet. Israel has already been warned in chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, to avoid fortune tellers, diviners, others, because God has spoken to them already. And he even says that God will continue to speak. Look in verse 15. The Lord your God, chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Again, another good reminder that God, even speaking, is merciful, but that he speaks and that it doesn't destroy those who hear it is, again, a mercy from God. So every time we open this book and we read these words off these pages, it, what a mercy. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they have spoken. Again, there's not a lot of times Israel's right. Here's where they're right. We might die when we hear his voice again. He's like, yeah, that's good point. Good point. Now, there are definitely those Israel should not listen to, but Israel is to be a people of the ear. They're to keep listening to God. They were right in that we don't need to be hearing directly from God because we might die, but God is not going to stop then speaking. He, he still continues to make sure that they hear all that he wants them to hear. He's going to speak here, he says, through a prophet. That didn't mean that they didn't need to hear any more from God, but God is going to speak to them through certain means. God had spoke to them through Moses at Horeb, and God says, I'm going to continue speaking through them through a prophet that's like Moses. In chapter 18, verse 18, he continues, I'm going to raise up from among or from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to all speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Who's initiating the speaking? It's God. God's initiating this 
whose word is coming through? It's, it's God's word who's coming through this prophet. And so the accountability then is, because it's God's word, through his prophet, the accountability then is to the Lord. So they are to listen to him. So as there's this warning to listen, there's also a warning to be careful what you hear and what you speak. Be careful of those claiming to use that kind of prophetic authority. In verse 20, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. You can see how high the stakes are in these instructions from the Lord. The stakes are high for listeners. Obey it, or you're accountable to the Lord. And, and those who would claim to be prophets, the stakes are high. If this is not a true prophet, you're accountable to the Lord. And so God helps them, right? He doesn't just say, like, good luck with that. Hope you can figure out the difference. He gives them identifiers of a true prophet. Verse 21, if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not, or may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? That's well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. It would be contrary to the very nature and character of God. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. I love that. We've already seen the warnings like, hey, some prophets can come and do great signs, but if he's not speaking from the Lord, don't worry about his signs. You don't need to worry about that. Now, he's told them what they need to know. Now, there have been warnings of false prophets, so they need to test them. And, and the test for one who claims to, again, he speaks in the name of the Lord. That's one claim. But he speaks for other gods. If he speaks for any other god other than the one true living God, then clearly they're not to listen to them. Don't just, you have a word from the Lord. Don't listen to these words from other gods. But the one who claims to speak from God is to be tested. And the test is this. Does this word come to pass or not? If not, the Lord has not spoken. But notice that the reverse is not asserted. Right? He doesn't say, if it does come to pass, he's for sure from the Lord. Now, maybe that's true, but he doesn't detail that out for us. In chapter 13, right, the, the warnings of the prophets before, there were signs and wonders done. So it's possible, I think, that someone could assert to be a prophet from the Lord, say some things that actually do come to pass. And so they are, to, are they to listen to that? Is the, is the coming to pass alone enough to pass the test? And if that were true, how long were they to wait? I mean, we know of Isaiah. He's going to write some prophecies that were going to come to pass hundreds of years later. So how do we apply this test? Well, we also know of Israel that God gave them help of all sorts of other kinds. There's no more details given here, but God hasn't left them poorly equipped, right? The, the prophet and the word that he gives may be questionable, but they know what God has required of them. He, he gave it to them. He spoke it out, had them even write part of it down so that they would always remember. They know the direction of their lives. Here's what you're to give yourself to. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, they know that direction. They know what they're to be about in the land. Follow justice, only justice. And so while they might need to keep testing, keep waiting, they're, they're still to be obeying God, fearing God, trusting God. He's given them so much. The, and this God who had redeemed them, who had provided for them in the wilderness, who spoke to them on the mountain, who had given them his word and made a covenant with them, who commands their life in the promised land, is not a God who's going to abandon them so that they can't decipher between truth and error in a prophet. 
God's going to give them all that they need. Perhaps that's part of the point of not giving every single detail for how you test this prophet. It's because these are the people that are to be moving constantly in dependence upon God, trusting in him and what he has already given to them and obeying those things. Perhaps that's why he doesn't give every detail so they have exact certainty, so they keep being a dependent people, looking to God, trusting God, doing the things that God has already told them to do, obeying him. But in this, these chapters, he's also given them all these other helps from these other leaders. All these leaders that God appoints. Notice the commonality between judges, priests, king, prophet. What's the common thread that they have? There are to be people that are listening to the word, that are obeying this word, that are applying this word. The judges, justice, only justice they should follow. That's only found in God. And they only know about God because he's revealed himself to them. And they can only apply justice because they can find out what's consistent with what he's given to them in his word that he has given. The kings, copy this word out. Write it down. Know it. Be a lifelong learner of it so that you know it. And, and again, they're to help lead this out as these model Israelites leading out what it looks like to be consistent with the word of God in their lives. Consistent with what God has revealed. As these authorities, these leaders are leaders that are under authority as Israel is to be under authority. God has not hidden himself from them. He's not hidden what he wants from them, what he requires from them. And all these leaders know those same things too. And they're to help bring these things about in Israel. They're to be in every town helping covenant faithfulness, helping people walk in faithfulness to the word that God has already given. God has made himself known. They know what to do. Keep the word. Obey the law, fear God, and the truth of who God is and what he's like is evident everywhere and to be evident everywhere in their community so that they can take that truth and then hold the prophet up to it and say, does this match? Is there consistency here? Even if he does a sign, even if he speaks in the name of the Lord, is this consistent with what we know? And it's that truth that can purify them, protect them, and mark them off as this distinct people in the promised land. And perhaps it's that very idea that we're meant to land on to. See, we're a people of God, and we're to be a people that are under authority, the authority of the truth. That includes all leaders. We would never call people to submit to leaders that aren't also those who are in submission, primarily to the Lord. We want those in authority over us who are under authority, and especially under the authority of the truth of God's word. The church is identified as a pillar of truth. Christians are those who are, are fitted, right? They're very armor. They're fitted. They have this belt of truth. In other words, what's truth doing? And, and even in both of those images, it's interesting, right? Truth is holding up. Both of those images are within the context of attack. Not with flesh and blood. False teachers all around. The church is a pillar of the truth. You have the belt of truth holding those things up. Truth is to hold us up. Both of those images are these images that are under attack. So truth helps us repel attack. It protects, in other words, against attack. But a, a pillar and a, a belt, they also stand. They, they stand. They, they are being held up before a watching world. So you can see the truth being held up, and it's being held up by the very people of God, the, the church of the living God, the people who are under God's authority. The truth is held up before a watching world. And so God, he, he works for the truth to work for Israel. He, he uses this truth, and it, 
this truth is, is before them. And you may not have every detail of every test, but you have the truth. So he works for their sakes by, by saying, like, here's, here's the test, but you, you have given, been given truth. You're the people of the truth. And so when you go through all these leaders, it's God who takes initiative. It's he who puts all of them in place. It's he's the one who instructs every single part of this. The leaders, they were then necessary for the organization of Israel, the, the justice of Israel, the, the care of the people of Israel, the protection of Israel, the purity of Israel. But also let's remind ourselves that these leaders that were for all those things were not enough. Israel was confronted of justice issues by the prophets repeatedly. You're not upholding justice in the land. Yeah, you're bringing your sacrifices, but I abhor them because you don't care about justice. The priests, they were sinful themselves, and so as they're making sacrifices to the Lord, sin sacrifices, they had to make sacrifices for themselves because they'd failed to lead in covenant faithfulness themselves. The kings, they they followed the laundry list of things he said you shall not acquire. Solomon gave himself over to wealth and, and women and all these other things that influence and power and military might. False prophets abounded. I mean, they were all over the place. I, I don't know that there was a king in the whole history of Israel that had a copy of the word and that read through it. They, they failed in every corner. And so what does God do? He takes initiative again. And this time he, he doesn't appoint leaders. He appoints his son. And he sends his only son into the world. And here the son comes, and the son is a, is a son that lives under authority. He says, my, my bread is to do the will of the Father. And John's gospel, it asserts that God has handed over to the son all judgment. He's the judge. And this judge is also the priest. He's the great high priest who, who didn't even need to make sacrifices for himself because he had no sin. And not only was that the case, but he could also continue as priest forever because he wasn't going to die and stay dead as the other priests had died and moved on. He dies and he raises and he sits at the right hand of God and is one who there is standing as this great high priest who can be approached boldly because he understands the weakness of his people as he took that on himself, but he defeated it. He's the king, the one the Lord chose and appointed, and he came into this world, and, and he didn't falter like his great-great-great-grandfather Solomon and David. Instead, in his perfection, he comes into the house, and he binds the strong man and plunders his good because he's the king of all kings. He's the prophet that was foretold here in, in Acts chapter 3. We hear Peter's sermon, and, and he references this passage in Deuteronomy. Again, the, the relevancy of the Old Testament is everywhere through the New Testament. And he says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. He's speaking of Jesus. He's alluding to Jesus from your brothers. And you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He says, Jesus has come. This is the prophet that you were looking for. He has come. And so what are you to do with this prophet? You're to listen to him. And he brings them to the end of the sermon. And what does he want from them? Verse 19, here's what they're to do. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Or in verse 26, he says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. How? By, by turning away every one of you from your wickedness. So as a, a pillar of the truth today, we have the better judge. We have the better priest. We have the better king. We have 
the prophet. So who are we to listen to? Who are we to follow? Him, Jesus. And in him, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king, we have all the justice that we'll ever need. It's found in him. All the care we'll ever need. It's found in him. All the protection we'll ever need. It's found in him. All the truth we'll ever need. It's found in him. This is the one we follow. Repent, therefore, and follow after him. One of the ways that we're meant to follow him is by being reminded of of what he has done, who he is and what he's done. We, We do this in the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that we take together as believers, as part of those who are people of the truth, following the way and the truth and the life. And we're reminded that of, of his work as prophet, priest, and king, that he is the one who came, and he, he was the perfect representation of his father on this earth, that he is the one who then, out of his perfection, didn't claim what was, could be rightfully his, but laid his life down so that we might join him in his inheritance forever. He's the one who was, blood was poured out so that our sins might be forgiven, and he's the king of all kings who overcame even death, and one day will come back and finally and fully take all of his children to be with him in his kingdom forever. If that's you, if you are following Jesus, if that's the one you trust in fully, this meal's for you. Be reminded of what he has done. Look forward to his return. If that's not you, we say what Peter says. Repent. Turn from your sins and to the one true living God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we rejoice in you today because you are everything that we need. You are the complete leader for human beings. You are the prophet who gives us God's perfect word. And if we do not listen to your word and obey, then we are doomed. But you came and you spoke and you continue to speak through your word, and we praise you for that. Jesus, you're also our king, and we seek to place our authority in all different kinds of places for um, power, thinking we can control things, we can control our situation, Lord, but you are the ruler of all of the universe, and we are on your side And you've already determined how the world will end, and we can delight in being your subjects. Help us to obey your rule, Jesus. And at the Lord's Supper today, we celebrate your priestly work on our behalf, both both as the priest and as the judge. You are the judge who will bring an account of every one of us before your throne on judgment day, but because you have also entered in not only as priests to offer up a sacrifice to your father, but you are the sacrifice as well. Lord, thank you for dying in our place, for paying for sins that you did not commit, but we did, so that the wrath of the father would fall on you and not us. Because of your holy work as a prophet and a priest, and a king, and a judge, and a sacrifice. We have nothing to fear on the last day, 
And because of your holy work, we have the message of life to hold out to all people in all places that they can be forgiven, that they can be made whole, that they can be people who know you and worship the God of all creation, Lord. Will you use your people to declare this good news? I pray that our lives would reflect your goodness and your glory and your love and your holiness. Will you draw people to yourself, Jesus, through us? Thank you for laying down your life so that we could live forever. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.